Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Uh, If you can quickly turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. We are going to be starting at verse 11 today. Matthew 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? Is it no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men? You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor does any one light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray today. Jesus, we just thank you for your word. As Aaron said, we thank you for this um, ability that we have in this room and this blessing to openly worship your name, open your word, and learn more about you and know you more. We thank you for this place today. We thank you for uh, this church and for everyone who's out here today, God. And I just ask that as you are uh, speaking through me that there isn't a single thought, mind, or action that comes through my mouth. We ask that you convict, you teach, and you lead us closer to your cross today. Amen. Just a week and a half ago, the UN celebrated its 75th anniversary of their Declaration of Universal Human Rights. The event was filled with all kinds of accomplishments, with uh, racial breakthroughs, cultural breakthroughs, and moral achievements of the world. And they had a section specifically saying the moral achievements of the world bringing aid and greater power and peace achieved through the UN. And the whole event was essentially just a touting of their community and all the things that they'd done, saying, look at us, look at how we're doing. But a lot of questions kind of came up from um, the actual celebration itself. Because we live in a world where, while we may be in a time of, even though there's wars going on, in a time of great peace, there's still greater disunity culturally between each other. While we were becoming more unified on a global scale, we were seeing a greater disunity within our own borders. You know, people protesting, counter-protesting, people threatening harm online through the veil of their screen. And in general, the culture wars have brought, with the information age, so many things to the surface in the Western cultures, not just ours or the US's, but of all. Externally, we are at peace, but internally, we are not. And we see this in the political tribalism that we are currently going through, where people are claiming their own side for themselves, their immunity for their own party, platforming them as the only answer, while villainizing and scorning the other side. And regardless of our standing in this room, we are all sons and daughters of the kingdom of heaven. Christians are called to come alongside peacefully to be present in the world and to be active in it. And too often what we see is that Christians can be the ones actually feeling some of these flames instead of snuffing out the coals. 
And today we're going to be covering a passage where we are going to be addressing that. And a call for all of us on how we can be a community of holiness in a time of cultural chaos. If you're familiar with this passage today, Salt and Light, Jesus is in the throes of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He's surrounded by all kinds of people, some of whom were familiar with his words, some of whom were not, some of whom who had no context to who he was at all. He was surrounded by the poor, the marginalized, but he was also surrounded by people of status and people of wealth. And in previous areas and the previous verses, coined the Beatitudes, Jesus is actually revealing to his followers in the start of this sermon, boldly, that the kingdom of God is here and that it has come, not for those who have it together or who think they have it together, but for those who don't and those who know it. And during the Beatitudes, he is listing off all of these groups of people. From the reader's perspective, it seems really optimistic. You know, if I am someone in mourning, if I am someone who's downtrodden, who is uh, poor or who is facing some persecution, that's pretty amazing. I feel, I feel blessed. That's, how is that possible? You know, it's an it's a amazing, uh, amazing message that he puts out that regardless of who you are, you have a place in the kingdom of heaven. But then the gears shift in verse 10, if you read it with me together. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. In the same way, they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Jesus is, he's placed all these blessings out and now he's tempering the optimism of the Christian life, saying that things are going to get bad before they get better. He's warning them by saying, if you want to follow me, you're gonna be beaten, you're gonna be thrown in jail, insulted, scorned, or even killed. And as Aaron said previously, in many parts of the world, open worship of Jesus is condemnable by jail time or even death. Yet ironically, that's actually where Christianity is growing the most. In the West, we don't face that kind of persecution, that visceral persecution of being imprisoned or being killed. Because in other dominantly Buddhist or Hindus, Hindu countries, Christianity is illegal, where in, in Canada, it's not. But for millions of people across the globe, what Jesus describes here is very tangible. It's a reality for them. And he's saying to them, if you are these people, if you are beaten, if you are killed, if, if you are hated because of what you say, it's not who you are, but it's because of me. He's placing the blame onto himself. I feel like when we hear that in this room, we can feel less, we can feel empathy, we can feel um, what we can for the people who are going through those situations, but as we publicly worship our Lord and have the ability to open God's word openly, there is a bit of a disconnect for us. However, for these followers 2,000 years ago, this message was true for them. And it's true for us as well. Because for them, what Jesus was saying was controversial. It was going against the status quo. It was something that was very different. But immediately after, and I love this, in verse 12, in verse 11, he says, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, rejoice. As if he knows the hearts of the people who are gonna be persecuted or the people who are gonna be downtrodden. He immediately goes into this call for us 
to veer away from the temptations of shame or isolation, or I think Canadians, being passive people, reclusing to our own little corners. He's saying, don't be discouraged. Don't be apathetic towards your reach in the world to be present in it. Maybe for you, it's that one coworker who is curious about the faith, but you just don't really want to bring it up. Maybe for you, it's family, and you think the best course of action is to just remain still and leave it alone. Or a close friend, a loved one, and you just don't have anything to say. Well, don't be discouraged. That's not my intention, because Jesus here is not discouraging us. He's saying to rejoice in these moments, to not keep away what is changing the world, to not fall back upon our instincts to pull away, but to rejoice. I think for many of us, isolation is our response. We'll avoid the individual, we'll take a step back, we'll create distance, but he's calling us to rejoice. That is our mandate, that is our response. A quote that has always stood with me is from Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian and pastor who advocated against the Nazi regime during the late 1930s upon his imprisonment and death. And he has this to say in his book, Cost of Discipleship. Once the arms of our enemies are too tired to beat us, or the tongues of evil are too numb to break us, bless and rejoice. That comes from a man who was targeted personally to be wiped out. And he calls us to bless and rejoice. Jesus is using this uh, persecution as sort of your mandate, what you're supposed to do going forward. But then he uses the salt and light as your identity. Let's read from verse 13 and on. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Salt was a really well-known symbol in the ancient world. It wasn't just something that they had, but it was, had a greater meaning. And I think for us today, we need to understand those individual meanings for the Jewish culture, for us as Christians as we go forward. So the first element of the salt was to purify. Salt was pure, the very essence of the look of what it is, void of any blemish, it was pure. But beyond that look, it actually had meanings of purity through the uh, purifications of animal sacrifices and offerings. And if you read throughout the Old Testament, salt is used as a tool constantly over and over and over again for these various things. So for the Christian, for us living here today, our call is to live purely as Jesus followers giving complete glory to God, not out of our own internal works, but out of a response for the gospel that has been given unto us. He is calling upon us to give him glory in what we do, what we say, how we act, and everything in our life, to watch and listen for how we think. That the very root of who we, do, who we are, we do things in purity. The second element is to flavor. Salt was used, like it is today, to lift a meal, to give savoriness to a meal, to bring out some of the spices and flavors that were present. And for the Christian, our joy is the lifting of the gospel. So when we are called to be flavorful, we are called to be outwardly joyful as a response, to walk next to those in times of trial, those in times of pain or hurt, and to bring the joy of the gospel into their lives. And I think that's especially true in how we actually speak to each other as well. Not just how we treat the outside world, but how we as a community here at Bethany, but also as Christians of the world, how we treat each other. That for every word which leaves your mouth, that for every action 
that you are to encourage, that you are to lift, you are to be kind and to give grace to the world. I think we are to champion, I don't think I know, we are to champion those who are oppressed. We are to help and come alongside and give joy to the underdogs in our society. Just pause with me for a second. Think about what that would look like for you. What if we as a church, what if we as Christians in this community had the gospel seasoned over every single interaction? You're out for coffee, you're out meeting a friend. Someone cuts you off in traffic, maybe. How would you bring the gospel into that situation? And then beyond that, what would it look like in Calgary if we as a collective church, as Christ followers, chose to radically love each other well and love the communities around us well? What would our city look like? What would Canada look like? What if we as Christians in a, in a culture that is disunified brought peace to the chaos? That we were the ones to actually come alongside those who are downtrodden to help them succeed, to help them to love well, and to help them also see the grace and the truth that we know. What would that look like for you on a daily basis? The third element is to preserve, which means what you do tomorrow matters. Your vocation, your job, either at home or, or out, it matters. In the ancient world, salt was used to preserve the meat. They didn't have refrigeration, and if they did, it was a water well, and salt was used to cure meat over long periods of time. As Christians in this world, we are called to do the same, to cure what is around us, to purify what is around us, and to preserve the cultures we are embedded in. What you do tomorrow matters. Maybe not New Year's Day, but the day after, when we all go back to work. What you do matters. Because being in this morning, being in this church on Sunday morning is fantastic. I'm pleased to see everyone here. But church begins when we leave those doors. Our life starts, our gospel begins when we leave those doors and share that into the world. It is necessary for you to be out there, to be in class, to be in a boardroom meeting, to make high-end decisions, to be at home, be out at a store, at a friend's place, to be present in the world. Again, not to recluse back into our own skins, but to be ongoing. You play a critical role every single day as a bringer and bearer of the good news. The salt of the earth, I think, is the most beautiful description that Jesus has for us of how we ought to live. Because, but it doesn't end there, because the final element is to spread. As effective as salt, as salt is, it must be spread evenly. If you're salting a chicken or a steak or any sort of dish in general, you want to evenly salt it. If you're to just put half of your steak with salt and the other half with not, you'll have blandness up until a salt lick, and that would just not be nice. As Christians, we are to spread among the earth and be willing to share and season the gospel in people's lives. We are called to purify, to flavor, to preserve, and to spread. So wherever you go, we should be asking these three questions. One, am I purifying? Two, am I flavoring? And three, am I preserving? Am I being effective in the culture that is around me? Am I helping people see Jesus in my everyday life? He then goes forward from the salt, stating that if it loses its saltiness, its purity, its flavor, it is no longer good. He says, 
But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. That is our greatest temptation. I genuinely believe that. To live in apathy of what God calls us to be. To live with no regard of our purity. No flavoring in our life. And to remain isolated from the people who need us most. Who we need to care for the most. Because we often think that as Christians we can be the most effective by having a screaming match. Or being the loudest voice on a mountaintop trying to spread it over among the whole land. Is that the way of Jesus? Is that how he interacted with people? I would argue he didn't. I was listening to a podcast recently with two older pastors, and they're not older, 30s. I'm young. <laughs> they're both in their late 30s, and they were talking about why the world has turned against Christianity and we need to step in and stop it and all of these things. And as they kept talking and talking and talking, much like I am up here, as they were rambling, I thought to myself, I'm like, this, has, this isn't different. The world is not for Christianity. And that's the truth. Christians are content to remain and to be still. And I don't believe that should be our response. But the world hasn't changed. The truth of Jesus offends, as it did 2,000 years ago. If we want to truly make a difference, Instead of screaming from the mountaintop, instead of posting harsh things online or leaving comments for people to see, we're called to love well. Because again, we are too content to be up here on the peak, screaming down in the valley, rather than actually going into it and being present with those people. And I'm guilty of this too. I think of myself too highly. I need to be humbled. I need people in my life to keep me down in the valley there. And tangibly, we can actually see this in scripture. In Acts 17, we actually see Paul himself partaking in customs of a synagogue in Thessalonica. He spends three days partaking in their Sabbath. He didn't have to. He could have gone in there, barged open the gate and said, Jesus is the truth. You guys need to follow me. You need to change your lives. But what did he choose to do? He chose to spend three days with them in Sabbath, in presence, not abandoning them. And then you can see in Acts 17.4 that the crowds were actually convinced, both those inside the synagogue but those outside of it, the Greeks around in the community. It's effective. It shows the effect of what being patient yet ever-present can be. And that is what we need to embody as well, as being salt of the earth, being ever-present, being ever-patient with people in our lives. Jesus then goes on in verse 14 to the light of the world. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp or put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Look, I'm not a physicist. I went to a college and then Bible college which to some people is less of a college. But I'm not highly educated. I'm not a physicist. I don't understand how light interacts and lives in the world. However, I live in a basement apartment with only one window. So I know the value of light in a dark space. It's a reality 
for my wife and I. Our window is in our singular bedroom and then the rest of the apartment is in dark. And we have a stairwell that leads outside and we like to keep a light on constantly just so we don't trip going up and down the stairs during the night. But it's so bright that under the crack of the, the light in the stairwell, it gleams into our room, into our whole space. And in the morning when I take my dog out, when it's early and it's completely pitch dark and I'm not turning on any lights because my eyes haven't adjusted yet, I open up the door and it just flashes and hits me and hits the rest of the room around me. This is what Jesus means. To be a light in the world, a light that overcomes, supersedes any kind of darkness in our world. That even in the slightest crack, crevice, or bump, that it will brighten and it will shine. Light extinguishes darkness but it also reveals, think of the expression, a light to my path is a guidance to us. And I think when we hear that sort of uh, guidance to my path, we think of maybe headlights or a street lamp or a flashlight you may have in the cupboard, but for the ancient audience, it's totally different. Turn with me to Isaiah 42, verses six to eight. Isaiah 42, six to eight. I am the Lord. I have called you into righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and to those who dwell in darkness in that prison. God is promising Israel in these verses. A nation that at this point in time had turned away from him in every possible regard, giving away everything to other kingdoms, other powers, instead of giving their surrender to God. That even when they turned away though, God comes back and he says, you will still be my people. You will be the light of the world. I will not break this covenant with you. What he's declaring over them in in those verses is that they will be his people, but that he will be their God, and that through them, the world will be illuminated. Now, if you read the Old Testament, did Israel illuminate the world? Yes and no. Constantly in the Old Testament, we see failure after failure of Israel placing their trust to judges, placing their trust to kings, placing their trust to other kingdoms and other powers before they placed their trust in God. Yet time and time and time again, God comes back to them and says, you will be my people. You will still bring salvation onto this earth. You are the light of the earth. Matthew is pointing this out because if you read the whole gospel, he is essentially convincing this Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one awaited. He is the one who has come. And that has come through Jesus. That he is the fulfillment of this promised light, of this promised covenant. Let's go back to Matthew. Let's go to chapter four. And we'll start at verse 12 and we'll read all the way to 16. I'm sorry if I butcher some of these names, but we're gonna do our best. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. In leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, 
in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. In verse 16, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of the death, upon them a light dawned. And then afterwards in chapter five, Matthew is continuing this dialogue. He's showing this interaction of Jesus calling upon the crowds that they are the light. And the three things that are happening here that are really important for us, the three uh, things in the story of God that is being pushed forward in this passage is one, that Israel was meant to be the light, but they failed. Yet God still promised a Messiah. Then Jesus comes, and he is the light. Jesus is still the ever-present light in our world. But he is now turning to these new Christians, these new believers, and he's saying, you are the light. You are what I am gonna give unto. You are gonna go out into the world and be present in it. And then in verse 14 or 15 in Matthew chapter five again, he says, in verse 14, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does a light in a lamp be put under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. In our apartment, when I light a light, it shines everywhere unless we're covering something up. And I see what he's saying here. He's saying, you have something so powerful and so enriching upon this world. And for you to keep that, to keep it hidden, why would you do that? You are a light onto this world. You are to be a given to people. You're supposed to give joy. You're supposed to give peace and presence to them. That is who we are. Jesus is calling upon these followers 2,000 years ago, and he's calling upon us today and saying, you are the light. Jesus is giving out two invitations here. The first is for you to be the salt of the earth, to permeate those around you, to lift up those in mourning. Jesus is inviting us to be the salt of the earth and to be the light of the world, to be loving to those who know Jesus and who don't know Jesus. To be revealing to those who love God and that want nothing to do with him. To care well and to be present in every possible moment of our lives. We are entering another year, which I personally, I love Christmas, but I think the new year is a really unique time where a lot of people have this kind of unfettered optimism of what the year holds ahead. Maybe it's a new season for you, maybe it's a new job, new outlook, new additional family member, something like that. But if you are in this room, take a moment, take a pause, before you get into all the rushings of the new year, and think about how you can bring salt into this earth, how you can permeate the gospel into people's lives, and how you can penetrate in every single avenue and situation that someone may be going through. How you can be the light where they only may see darkness. As we go into this new year, let's be ever present. Let's love people really well. 
Let's do our absolute to just bring joy into people's situations that they may be going through. Let me pray and we'll continue today. Jesus, I just thank you for this message that you have uh, embedded upon my heart. I thank you that you have uh, brought all of us here today and I just ask that as we go into this new year that we would embody what it means to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That you would give us opportunities, that you would give us motivations and places to see these people who are in anguish. We may not see any joy, any hope and may we penetrate there and stick to them and love them radically. We love you, Lord, and we ask that you go with us today. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again, and God bless you.